Good morning. It is good to be with you. And it is good to sing with creation of the Father's song. And I know it's appropriate for a guest preacher to say that it's a privilege and an honor. And you're supposed to say those kinds of things. But I really mean it. This morning is good for my soul. And I beg the Lord that by the end of this morning, you'd be able to say this, the same thing. I knew this morning would be good. It's good to be with Rick and with friends. I didn't realize it'd be quite as much of a reunion, getting to see uh, John, Joyce, whose family, and Jacob, who I've not seen in a decade, and Kyle and Allie and Caleb and Lindsay last night, and uh, Aaron, and others I'm sure I'm missing. In heaven, there'll be no more goodbyes and hellos, will there? Uh, but as we've traveled around, and we have done so these last couple months in order to raise support for Poland, it's been good for us to visit different churches. And as the weeks wind down, we plan to be there in spring. As the weeks wind down and as it sets in, I feel, especially this morning, the gravity and the gladness of being with you. Rick gave a kind introduction. Uh, if it's true that at one time I was a Paul to a Timothy, it is so no more. It is a real Barnabas relationship, brother. Thank you. Rick's a dear friend, and he's a, a sizable encouragement. We thought of ourselves quite highly as we toured the state, speaking at baccalaureates and different churches, and he'd do music and I'd do preaching, and we thought we were quite the team, quite the duo, ready to take over the young world. God has brought us low, and he's brought us high at times, and here we are this morning again. It's a privilege. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 96, the 96th Psalm. I won't speak much on Poland this morning, that's not my intent, uh, but I will mention that we are headed to a country that is the geographical size of Montana with a population of California or Canada, 38 to 40 million. It is one of the least evangelical on earth, about 0.15% evangelical. One of my friends who's been ministering there for 20 years now says the percentage of conservative Christians who hold to the inerrancy of scripture, God's sovereignty and a biblical view of the gospel is infinitesimal, infinitesimal. We've been there three times as I said, our plan is to return this spring. It's a massive aspiration and endeavor and it's being undertaken, I'm, I'm grateful, not just by a simple family with the last name Ripley, but by churches like Cornerstone, by people like you. I really mean that. We, uh, we're not going out alone. We need you to hold the rope. We beg for your prayers. We need them. We're a weak and simple family in service, a great, in service of a great and glorious God. We just, we can't do it alone. We won't do it alone. So be fellow workers in the gospel. We believe partnerships like this are very, very significant. But I'm here not to talk so much, as I said, about Poland, but from Psalm 96. I'm taking a note from Paul here. I don't know if you know this, but so many of Paul's letters are support letters. And as he writes the church in Rome, I'll never forget the day my pastor, uh, seminary prof said, Romans is just like a really long missionary support letter. At the end, he says, I want to go to Spain and I want the church at Rome to support me. And I thought, really, can that be? Well, it is. But you see, that's Paul's strategy. The more I've studied the book of Acts and the more I've studied Paul's 
writing, when he asks for support, he's very bold about it. He says, and even commands, pray for me. But it's always in the context of rich, dense, thick Christology. It's clothed in this doxological praise. So the main thing is not even missions. It's Christ and his glory amongst the nations. So I'm just trying to take a note from Paul this morning. When Paul came and he preached to uh, wrote letters to places like Rome. He didn't write about how cool the food was in Macedonia. Or all the cultural differences. Those things are neat. They're common grace things to enjoy. And I love to talk about Poland. Be happy to do that with you another time. But Paul was satisfied with teaching the church about Christ. There's many jewels in God's word, but we look at one this morning in Psalm 96. Follow along as I read. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory amongst the nations, his marvelous works amongst all the peoples. For great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the people are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say amongst the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is firmly established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the fields exult and everything in it. And then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. A word of personal reflection on why I've chosen Psalm 96 this morning. Rick asked me last night as we gathered together, what excites you about this? This excites me. This morning's sermon is a long answer to Rick's question. This psalm has been jet fuel in our family's tank. What I mean is that if this isn't true, if Psalm 96 isn't true, if Matthew 28 isn't true, if God's word isn't true, then what we're doing is absolute foolishness. We have a good and great falls. A family of six, little plot of land, great healthy church, things are going fabulous. But if this is true, if this is true, if Psalm 96 is true, then that changes everything. If Acts 20, 24, Rick's verse is true, but if I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only that I may finish the course and the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of Christ, of God. If that's true, then that compels us and propels us from Great Falls, Montana to Poland. There's no other logical way. It makes perfect sense. Perfect sense. If life is really short, and if hell is really hot, and if God is really good, then this is the way. You'll notice in Psalm 96 that there's not an author and date attached. It matches 1 Chronicles 16. That's the occasion on which David is bringing the ark back to Jerusalem and Zion. And here the choir director emphasizes not only worship from Zion, Jerusalem, as they bring in the ark, but glorious global praise. 
like a chorus that sings from every nation and every people and every tribe and every tongue. The psalm is really quite simple. That's one of the reasons I love it. In this psalm, we have a call. Let's break it down for you. It's a song. It's a call. What to do? Worship. And then there's a cause. Why should we do it? The psalmist gives two reasons. One, God's worth, his value, who he is and what he's like. And the other is his works. That is what he's done. So we have the call, worship. And in this psalm, it appears in different ways. Sing, declare, ascribe, worship, tremble, say, roar, exult, sing. These are expressions of the worship, even synonyms for worship. So the call is worship. Simple, isn't it? The reason or the cause is God's worth and God's ways. And they're commingled in the psalm. You see them right together. Who God is, what he is like, and what he's done. It's a glorious global praise chorus of worship to God because of his worth and his ways. Well then, we ask, what is worship? You're well taught. You know what worship is. You may even know that it comes from an old English word dealing with worth. So when we talk about worship, it comes from worth-ship. I've done a little bit of a play on words here this morning. We worship God because of his worth. The adjective, what God is like, leads to the verb. His worth leads us to worship. The term for worship in verse 9 of our psalm is one that denotes bowing before and coming under Yahweh. It's like Philippians 2. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should, what's it say? Bow, come under, prostrate, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that bowing in scripture, that prostrating is often accompanied because of God's goodness and greatness and glory and holiness. But even arriving, awestruck, trembling at the glory of God, worship. His worthiness and his works, as seen in the psalm, should excite the Christian to worship him and call everyone and everything else to do the same. When you grasp, I believe this, when you grasp God's worth and God's ways in this psalm and in scripture, you will respond in worship and you'll call all creatures and all creation to join you in this glorious global praise chorus. That's what what worship is. The psalmist tells us how to do it. Look at verse 1. He says, the way you do it is you sing. Right at the beginning, sing. A proper recognition of who God is will lead you to song. Not surprised to see singing in the psalms. Some 70 times the psalms talks about singing. But look here in this psalm, it's not just sing. It's sing, sing, sing. We've already sung this morning, haven't we, like this psalm says? Or have we? This is a corporate choir. The choir master is calling the congregation to sing, but he doesn't just say sing. He says it's emphatic. It's superlative. It's the highest degree. Sing. So have we done it this morning? I don't know. I don't have spiritual x-ray vision. I think he's talking about more than your posture, how you hold your hands or what you do with your eyes. It can't be less than volume, but it must be more than volume. Here it's sing. And I think you know what the psalmist says if you think about it for a second. We sing for all kinds of significant events in our life. My daughter turned 10 yesterday. We sing for her birthday. We sing for special occasions in our culture. We gather, I gather with about 30, 40 men on Tuesday mornings. Men's Bible study, we call it Grace and Grits, one of the highlights of my week. It's men pouring out their souls. We pray for each other. We memorize scripture. At the end of that time, we pick a song and we sing. 
but we don't yet sing. I'm jealous that our men would sing on that morning. I've been around singing. Chances are you have too. Imagine for just a moment, a cathedral filled with a hundred thousand voices, united and passionate song, all singing in union together. We don't have to imagine it. Just turn on your TV on the afternoon of February 11th and something called the Super Bowl is going on. And there will be a cathedral filled with song, roaring, I submit to you, in worship, passionately singing. I think the psalmist says, sing, worship by singing. Oh, I'm jealous that we would sing to our God. It was good to sing with you this morning. Verse 2 tells us the cause and the content of what we should sing. Look at it. It says, tell of his salvation. From day to day, tell forth his salvation. The word just means tell his good news. In fact, the Greek translation of this Old Testament passage has sometimes just evangelize. Tell his good news. Some translations say, proclaim the good news. When you see God's salvation, you sing it and you tell it to others. You gossip it. You can't help it. The psalmist says it's a form of worship. Tell of his salvation from day to day. I don't know when the last time you were afforded an opportunity to tell of his salvation was. But I understand missionary endeavors to be a lot of day-to-day work. You still got to fix the refrigerator. You still got to wash your clothes. You still got to work on the car. You still have to get insurance. And day-to-day as you do those things, as you get your hair cut, you tell of his salvation. In that respect, I suppose missionary works remarkably similar to what a lot of you do. You tell of his salvation from day to day. So you sing, you tell. Verse 3 says you declare his worth, his glory. So the content and the cause of us telling forth, singing forth, and declaring is his worthiness. The call is to worship by singing, by telling, declaring. And by verse 4, we finally have the why. What is the cause? Verse 4 says for. Here's the reason. Here's the why. For great is our God. Why should you sing? Why should you tell? Why should you declare? Why should you give your life away to tell of the worth of the Lord? Great is the Lord. He's great. He's worthy. Great is our God. And the psalmist is triggered to praise. Great is the Lord. Greatly to be praised. The call is to praise. The reason is he's great. He's vast. Infinitely so. Verse 5 gives another reason. For... Here's the cause for worship. Again, it's his worth. Compared to the idols, Yahweh is infinitely superior. Compared to the idols which are worthless gods, he is glorious, mighty, valuable. It's even a little bit of play on words in the original. The word for worthless, Elohim, sounds like the word for God, Elohim. So the psalmist says, you're Elohim are Elohim. They're worthless. They're nothing. They're zero. Jeremiah compares them to a mannequin. Jeremiah 10, verse 5, their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. (laughs) They do nothing. They cannot speak. He says they have to be carried. They cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. Jeremiah, the prophet, There is none like you, O God. 
You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. What is the missionary task? What is at least in part to stand before the nation and say, your gods are worthless idols, imposters. God made you. He cares about you. Look at the vastness, the greatness, the glory, the power, the salvation, the marvelous works of Yahweh. He deserves all your praise, all your glory, all your thanksgiving forever and ever. Your gods are imposters. They're charlatans. They're imitators. They have no gifts to give, no benefits to bestow, no worship to claim, no allegiance to give. They're scarecrows in a cucumber patch. So it was with the Gentiles, God, in the Old and the New Testament, Ammon and Asherah and Baal and Dagon and Molech and Artemis and Zeus, Human religions are not alternative paths to the same God. Yahweh is set alone on the mountaintop. He alone is God. Great is our God. You recognize we're just coming off of some of the greatest days of worship in the state of Montana. Hunting and football. We just, we celebrate these things uniquely in our state, don't we? But you can sub whatever funnels your affection. It doesn't have to be hunting or football it could be not sports, but sports cars. It could be leisure. It could be entertainment. It could be nature. It could be food. There's things more subtly dangerous, but no less disappointing. And just in the end, just as damning. They'll take your love, your money, your time, your affection, and they will gladly accept all your aspirations and ascriptions of worship. But they're worthless. They're worthless. The irony is actually great in this psalm, isn't it? We don't worship idols because they're worthless. We worship Yahweh because he's worthy. Now, I'll be the first to tell you that I enjoy things as a good gift from God. God's given us all things richly to enjoy and responsibly so. On prime rib, or excuse me, on Christmas, I just told you I enjoy, I enjoy prime rib. I mean, my mouth salivates when I think about dry brining that thing and sticking it in the fridge and then searing it and bring it up to 137 and just, mm. So I can enjoy that gift from God, but I cannot worship it. Why do you self store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal? Worthless idols. God's creative power and his genius, the psalm says, are what separates him from the worthless idols of the people. He made us. So God, help us to recognize your greatness, have a clear picture of your glory, of your vastness, of your creative power. Verse 6 speaks of Yahweh. It says, splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Our God radiates splendor. And majesty. That's why they're before him. He radiates them out. I don't know how often you think about God in those terms, but perhaps you ought to. They will stir you to worship and praise. Do you notice the location of the strength and the beauty? It's in his sanctuary. Why is it there? Because that's where God is. Our God is glorious and strong and beautiful. Our God is beautiful. One thing I've asked from the Lord that I shall seek, 
to dwell in the house of the God all the days of my life, to meditate on his works, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, David says, to gaze upon his beauty. God is beautiful. Do you think about Yahweh in those terms? Scripture says he is. If you were to go to your concordance and look up beauty, you would see over and over again that what God made points to what he is. He is beautiful, glorious. In the closing chapter of the Bible, the age of the ear turns to the age of the eye and scripture says they will see his face, his glorious, beautiful face. In the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah 33, they will see the king in his beauty becomes a glorious, concrete, eternal reality. They will see the king in his beauty. Oh, what a day that will be. And so we say, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In that sense, I don't even care if we go to Poland. I want to see the king in his beauty. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. A glorious, beautiful, worthy king. The king in his beauty. God's worth includes his beauty. He's infinitely worthy. And God's worth brings out, it solicits, it catalyzes in us worship. His worth inspires worship. The call is to worship. The reason is because he's worthy. And so we sing and we declare and we tell. Not just in voice, verse 8 says, also in giving. Look at 7 and 8, ascribe to the Lord. Ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord. So there it was, sing three times. Now here it is, ascribe three times. It's just a command form of the word give. Just like the repetition of sing, sing, sing. Here it is, give, give, give. Not just verbal praise, but also offerings in the sanctuary, the psalm says. Giving is actually a form of worship. The psalm reminds us. That's why we give in our corporate worship times. I visited a church where the giving basket was just in the back. And in one sense, that's just a thing of prudence. You do that how you want. But in another sense, I love how we did it this morning because we're actually worshiping God when we give. That's part of our corporate worship. What Jesus says is true. It's better to give than it is to receive. With our gifts that go towards global missions and local outreach and pastor's salaries and maintaining our buildings, what we believe is worthy and valuable receives our giving. We're to give to what we believe is valuable. So one of the guys was asking last night when we got together about my watch. I spent a lot of money on this watch because I think it's valuable. It helps me manage my health. It wakes me up in the morning. It tells me about when to end my sermon. It helps me manage my life. It's valuable. We give to what we believe is valuable. You will ascribe worth. You will give your time, your talents, and your treasures to what you believe is worthy. Mark it. You can bet on it. Just look at the national credit card statements on Black Friday. We give to what we believe is worthy. And verse 9 says it straight out. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Psalmist says his glory, his blinding, glorious radiance of purity and perfection. All that is good and beautiful that proceeds from Yahweh, worship him for. And here it's not just singing or telling or declaring or giving. It's, it's actually a physical response of worship. He says, tremble. Tremble before him all the earth. That was the response of Isaiah when he saw his glory. That was the response of Peter and John, Moses. When they see the king in his beauty, they tremble before him in his splendor. 
There's one more reason to worship God in this psalm, one more way, one more work. It's in the closing of this psalm. I don't know if you noticed this, that the intensity of this psalm builds over three parts, verses 1 through 6, verses 7 through 9, now verses 10 through 13. The reason to worship God here is not just salvation, it's not just creation, it's also judgment. The reason to worship God, the psalmist says, is judgment. Judgment. The New Testament tells us that the one who has brought salvation, Jesus, is also the one who brings judgment. Jesus is the coming judge who will both liberate and condemn. So you used to ask your heart this morning, do I look forward to the coming of Jesus? Do I cry out with the saints of old Maranatha? Do I await with eagerness this morning his coming? I suppose the answer to that depends on your relationship with Jesus. Probably my favorite part of the day is when I come home. About 6 p.m. in the evening, I'm going to pull up in the driveway. My dog's going to run out. And even more importantly, three of my kids are going to run out. And the fourth is going to waddle out. And they're going to say, Daddy, come home. (laughs) Those are my kids. And they see me as their father. And so when I arrive, they're so glad to see me. But if your enemy pulls up in the driveway, it's going to be a far different response, isn't it? So your excitement, your anticipation, or your fear of Jesus' coming is directly related to your relationship with him. And the psalmist sees God as a father and as a friend, so he's piled up phrases. He's piled up words to express his praise and excitement. There's an air of almost irrepressible excitement and gladness at the idea of Jesus' coming. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. The call here is to exult, to sing, to declare, to tremble. Why? Because Jesus is coming to judge. And it's just my experience. Anecdotally, I admit, but maybe it's yours, that I have to work extremely hard in the 21st century to remind myself and to remind Christians that Jesus is really coming to judge. The tyranny of the urgent is always upon us. Things need done. Bills need paid. Tax days is coming. I need to fix the lawnmower. What a job. There's things to do. He's coming. Sometimes we think it might be more probable that we entertain ourselves to death or eat ourselves to death first, but I don't think so. He's coming. And the day of the Lord will be a great market, an awesome day. And the praise and exaltation that saturates this praise poem, this psalm, it ends in a bit of a warning, doesn't it? He comes to judge, judge, judge. Three times again, judge. Hebrews 10, 34, we know him who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, Hebrews 10, 30, the Lord will judge his people. Mark it, Yahweh will exact a judgment on all unchecked sin since the garden. He will come. Acts 17, 31, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed, and he has given assurance, mark it, believe it, you can be assured of it. Why? Because Acts 17, 31, he raised him from the dead. And when Jesus was raised of the dead, it was not just a promise of the satisfaction of sins, the propitiation, praise be to God, that sins are done away with the penalty of sins, been vanquished. It's also a promise that he's coming again. And a powerful judge is a terrifying thing if that judge is not righteous and good. 
The psalmist says he judges in righteousness and faithfulness. And so for his followers, it's actually a liberation. But mark it, for unbelievers, on that day, there will not be a drop of mercy shown. Revelation 20, verse 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they'd done. Now is the day of salvation. Then is a day of judgment. Turn now. If you're not in Christ, if you don't relate to him as a brother and a friend and a father, today is the day of salvation. The time of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commends all people everywhere to repent. All people everywhere, here and abroad. Reminds me of the emphasis of this psalm. There's one more thing about this psalm we've got to understand. And that's this phrase, all the earth. Or verse 10, say among the nations. Understanding this psalm is incomplete without considering who to worship with. Who to join and to call into this glorious global praise chorus. God deserves praise in Poland and he's not getting it. The number of believers is infinitesimal. And praise be to God that this psalm cannot be completely exhausted by Cornerstone or Emmanuel Bible Church or Montana or by our nation or by churches in Poland, which are so few and far in between. But every nation of humanity is to call out praise to their maker, our glorious and beautiful and splendid God. I love studies of the Psalms for this reason. It informs and it strengthens and it fills out my praise. I might say on any given day, God's good, praise God. That's true, isn't it? That's biblical. But then I read in this psalm, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Well, that's kind of what I said. Kind of. <laughs> but this is rich and full and theologically deep. And so the Psalms give expression to my worship and they fill out my passion to praise God. But there's another benefit of the Psalms. They enlarge and expand my praise from my simple praise See, my praise in the morning looks like this. Maybe it's similar to yours. I get up in the morning, and I go to my fireplace, and I take my little cedar kindling, and I build my little log cabin, and I light it up. I'm going to go to my coffee maker. I'm going to make a nice cup of coffee. I'm going to go, and I'm going to take my Bible and my commentary. I'm going to go sit on the couch. By then, the fire's roaring. It's me and God at that point, and I get to worship him. I get to hear from him and respond and talk back to him. But that's not all it is. I can be tucked away in a log cabin for days, one of my favorite places to be. It's almost all centered on me and God. But this psalm, this psalm awakens my soul to a global God worthy of praise from not just a person, but from everyone and everything. I go from thinking about myself to this. All the earth should sing. All the earth. Declare his glory where? Amongst the nations, I'm just reading the psalm, amongst all the peoples, O families of the people, tremble before him all the earth. Is your view of Yahweh more like a local tribal deity who's not good, much good beyond billings? Or is he a glorious global God worthy of praise from everyone and everything? That's a psalmist God. 
Here in Psalm 96, God's worth is sung by everyone and everything in Madagascar, in Germany. It's not just Tanner, it's not just Emmanuel Bible Church, it's not just Cornerstone, but it's praise from nations and nature. Someday, do you notice the psalm? The whole created order is going to explode in praise to him. Well, how will the nations know unless someone tells them? How will creation? It's not just people, it's animate and inanimate objects. Verse 11, let the earth, that's the physical earth, rejoice. Let the seas roar and all that fills them. Sea mollusks and coral and shellfish and starfish and everything. Praise God. Let the fields exalt and everything in it. Deer and elk and worm and sunflower and barley stem. Praise the maker. Verse 12. Let the trees of the forest shout. Spruce, silver maple, white pine, pine. Don't whisper, pine. Shout in praise to God. (laughs) It's like the Garden of Eden is just blown open here. And we're invited into a God-entranced world as we just sing where creation sings the Father's song, calls the sun to wake the dawn, his fingerprints in flakes of snow, his breath upon the spinning globe. He charts the eagle's flight, commands the newborn baby's cry, all the earth must sing, but it doesn't. Does that bother you? That's the kind of thing that keeps me awake at night. There are people and tribes and tongues who don't. And so Billings Bluffs and White Pines sing for praise, expand the chorus. This psalm takes my earnest, but weak and simple and trembling one decibel praise. It cranks up the volume to a glorious global God worthy of every sacrifice, of every gift, of every song that we could sing. It's not just Tanner. It's the bioluminescent octopus and the squirrel chattering on the branch. All of creation. It's the foreign exchange student who, humanly speaking, would have never heard the gospel had it not been for the gospel-saturated host home that she found herself in. It's that Turkish person who moves for business to Warsaw, Poland, hears the gospel because God's appointed it so. The Spirit would remind us this morning that all the earth, every person, plant, and animal, creation, We'll sing the Father's song. Psalm 24, David teaches us that God owns the world. It's the Lord's and all the fullness of. Psalm 96 teaches us he rules over all. So go on and sing, church. Sing. Sing. Worship. Declare. Roar. And call everyone and everything to do the same. All the earth, all nations, all families of the people, joyous heavens, glad earth, wind-blown forests, wild creatures, global praise for glorious God, Armenia, Australia, Bangladesh, Belarus, Belgium, call out. Make his glory great amongst the nations. The call is to worship. The cause is he's worthy. He's done marvelous works of salvation. It closes with this. It's consummated in Revelation 5. Here's the New Testament fulfillment of that Old Testament hymn of praise. And they sang a new song. Does that sound familiar? A new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. This is the Lamb, for from you was slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and tongue and language and people and nation. Gloriously gobble praise chorus. Oh, it's coming. You mark it. We get to be part of it. Pray with me.
God, what a privilege is ours to be part of this praise chorus and to make your name great, to ascribe to you the worship, do your name. Please use our simple praise this morning and make it earnest, amplify it. May we worship you in spirit and truth as we sing, as we partake of the elements. Jesus, please, we ask in your holy and precious and beautiful name. Amen.